1: It is Wednesday, February 5th, and this is the Red Sea Roundup. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Deacon Mike Beauvais. Today in our second segment, we're going to be talking to uh, Professor Michael Behe, a biochemist from Lehigh University, and we're going to talk about intelligent design and why it should be an important consideration in science. Sadly, it is not, but um, we will find out from... uh, Professor Behe, why we should be talking about this. But before we get into anything else, I want to welcome all our listeners here on Red Sea Catholic Radio, especially here in the Brazos Valley on KEDC 88.5 FM, Hearn, Bryan College Station. And I want to welcome our Central Texas listeners on KYAR 98.3 FM, Lorena, Waco, and our listeners in Palestine on KINF 107.9 FM. Our phone number here is 85-LOVE-RED-SEA, so if you have something that you would like to let us know about, feel free to give us a call. Again, 85-LOVE-RED-SEA or 855-683-7332. Also, we still have tickets to the men's conference, No Man Left Behind, so if you would like one of these tickets, be the first caller at our phone number, and you can claim one of these tickets, so give us a call. Good morning, Thaddeus. How are you doing this morning?
0: Deacon Mike, I am very well. This is a cold and wet day here in Texas, but my heart is bright because
1: I'm on the air with you. You know, you need to get out more. (laughs) (laughs) I also want to take this opportunity to say hi to Father Giovanni, a Norbertine Priest,
2: novice, novice. You're, you're speeding novice. him up. I'm speeding you're, him up. But and, I appreciate your confidence. Uh, yes,
1: <laughs> a future Norbertine priest, if God, God allows.
2: Yes. God, if God allows, that's a and that's uh, way to put it.
1: Welcome. Thank you for being here because this gives us an opportunity to talk a little bit about something I am gonna bet most of our visitors, uh, our listeners, know nothing about. The as, Norbertines,
2: as did I, about a year and a half ago. Being from Texas, being from Houston, Sugarland. Didn't know a single thing about the Norbertines, our Holy Father, St. Norbert, our way of life. So it's a pleasure to be here.
0: Well, can you give the full name, the technical name of the order? Because that's always a fun one.
2: The Order of Prémontré. So we were founded in, we're a 900-year-old order, and traditionally for the ancient orders, you're named after the place where you were founded. So we were founded in the Valley of Prémontré in France. So, but we're colloquially known as the the Norbertines.
0: And sometimes but sometimes also you can call yourselves the pre pre-monstratens, premonstratensians. Pre-monstratens. That's right.
2: That's that's a mouthful. It's a mouthful. A lot of syllables. Mm-hmm. Don't ask me to spell that. We're which is why everybody just that. says Norbertines. Yeah, now, exactly.
0: St. Norbert of Xanten.
1: Mhm. Uh, what made you choose the Norbertines over some of the more commonly known religious orders?
2: Well, when I visited, I was I was overwhelmed with the peace that I experienced there, but I, I had never experienced the, the common prayer of the Norbertine way of life, chanting the divine praises seven times a day in choir together. I had never seen that. And hearing just the praises of God echoing through an Abbey church pierced through my soul. And also seeing that, that the Norbertine charism, if you want to call it that, is the Holy Eucharist and is to live from the altar and for the altar. And seeing that, that the centrality of the Holy Eucharist and the mother of God in all of, in the Norbertine way of life, I thought, where can I sign up? You know, I the sooner, the better. So now one other thing that's rather unique
1: about the Norbertines is your vestures. Normally, you know, we see uh, cassocks and uh, frocks and things like this, but rarely in white unless we're looking at the Pope.
2: Yes, we were were sometimes known as little Popes because our our habits look (laughs) eerily similar to to the Holy Father's cassock. You know, a white habit, which symbolizes Our Lady appeared to St. Our Holy Father, St. Norbert, and vested him with the white habit and with the mission to be like the angels of the resurrection, to always preach the good news that Yes our lord suffered and died but he did so that he could rise again just as he does in the hearts of everyone who believes in him and so that is that is why we wear white to be like the holy angels of the resurrection
1: Now you're a novice so how long is the novitiate in the Norbertine order
2: It's it's a 2-year program it's sort of like catholic boot camp and getting detached from a cell phone and internet and Netflix and all of the the things that I that I spent my time on before entering. And then after that, this this August, I will take first profession of vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. And then hopefully seven years after that, I will take solemn vows and become officially a, a fully professed religious. Wonderful. While we we're talking about
1: giving things up for something better, I wanted to bring up the fact that on March 6th and 7th, the Red Sea Retreat, Family Retreat is coming up. Bringing it back. Bringing it back because it was so well received last year and the year before. I think so. So tell us about it, Thaddeus.
0: Well, it's going to be March 6th and 7th. It's at St. Thomas Aquinas here in College Station. Whether you live in the Bryan College Station area or not, you're welcome to attend. Um, It's going to be $35 for families, $10 for individuals, Uh, Friday evening the 6th. We'll have a potluck dinner. Uh, we're going to have some uh, fun and games, uh, getting to know one another. Then on Saturday, we're going to have three speakers, uh, adoration. We're going to pray the Divine Mercy Chaplet. We'll have Mass in the middle of the day there at St. Thomas Aquinas in the extraordinary form. Uh, the And these three speakers we're going to have are all going to be reflecting and speaking on St. Therese of Lisieux, and how to live her little way in the family.
1: What time does everything start Friday evening?
0: Everything Friday evening starts at 5.30, and that goes until 8.30 p.m. there on Friday, and then we get things started on Saturday at 8.30 a.m., and we go until 5.30 p.m. on Saturday, and there's going to be breakfast, lunch provided on Saturday.
1: Again, you're listening to the Red Sea Roundup here on KEDC 88.5 FM and KYAR 98.3 FM, Lorena, Waco, and KINF 107.9 FM in Palestine. The phone number is 85-LOVE-RED-SEA, 855-683-7332. And remember, we still have tickets to the men's conference, so... Please give us a call if you would like one of those tickets. If you're the first caller, they're yours. One other thing I wanted to bring up is uh, this evening is the last night of the mission at St. Anthony's presented by Father James Sitchko, and it's been standing room only the first two nights, so I'm hesitant to invite anybody else. But if you have not heard him before and you would like to come see it, it's 6.30 this evening at St. Anthony in the main church. One of the other things I wanted to talk a little bit about is the feast day of St. Agatha today. Yes. Uh, St. Agatha was a young woman in the early third century who was martyred for her desire to live a chaste Christian life. It's interesting that um, there are seven women mentioned in the Roman canon, Eucharistic prayer number Mm -hmm. one. And the majority of them were martyred because of their desire to live chaste Christian lives. Mm -hmm. And so, It's interesting to me when we look at this and we see the contrast. There are also five women mentioned in the bloodline of Jesus, one of whom was a prostitute, one of whom pretended to be a prostitute, one of whom was an adulteress, one of them was an immigrant who traveled to Bethlehem with her mother-in-law and the other one was a young woman who was pregnant out of wedlock none of these women were defined in scripture by their past they were defined by their desire to serve god which is the same thing that holds for the seven women mentioned in the roman canon The reason I bring this up is there's been a lot of talk about the Super Bowl halftime show and the fact that the vast majority of people who viewed it were struck by the almost pornographic images presented during that halftime show. And the message that is sent to young women watching this is that if you want to be noticed That's what you need to do. Mm -hmm. And that flies so much in the face of the feast day of St. Agatha. Mm -hmm. The fact that so many of the women that were martyred in Rome were martyred because they refused to fit in to the objectification of women. Because in the Roman Empire at that time, women had two purposes. Mm -hmm. One of them was bearing male children. We know what the other one was. St. Agatha resisted that identification. She wanted to live her life for Christ. We need more St. Agathas in the world. We need much fewer Super Bowl halftime shows. Because ultimately, Christianity is still fighting the same battle today it fought in the Roman Empire. Identifying ourselves not by our limitations, not by our sins, not by our shortcomings, by, by the fact that we are created in the image and likeness of God, that we have value, not because of how we look, not because of how we act, but because of who we are created by God. So ultimately, let us always strive to be the children that God has created us to be, and resist the culture, just as Saint Agatha did in her life. I want to get back a little bit to, uh, with uh, Father Giovanni. Yes, Frater. Uh, yes,
2: just because I don't fr- want. Right. I, I appreciate the distinction. The yes. honor. I unworthy. <laughs> Domine non some genius Yes. Uh, now, are you pursuing the priesthood? Yes, God willing, I will be ordained a deacon in seven years or so, six years, and then a priest the year after that.
1: Now, I'm going to warn you about the deacon thing. You do know what a deacon <laughs> is, right? I do. It's basically a table waiter.
2: Yes. We Lord, do Lord all the jobs
1: nobody else wants to do.
2: And, and we're thankful that you do. <laughs> well, um, I think
1: that uh, you know most of the people listening are probably very much interested in your choice to do this, mm-hmm. what drove you to decide to give up all this stuff, Netflix, football, all yeah. these things?
2: A family, life, possessions, everything. It was quite simply the love of the blessed mother to be her priest's son, to hold her very son in my hands at the altar, to offer him to the eternal father. I thought, I mean, what higher good is there than that? What more could I seek in life and then the desire to be a saint. I want to be a saint, and I'm in a monastery of men who want to be saints too, and seeing that common desire for holiness and striving to sharpen one another, as, as it says in Holy Scripture.
1: What would you tell a young man who has considered joining a religious order?
2: Two things, be brave, be bold, and pray the Holy Rosary, and pray all the mysteries every day. All 20 decades. That is what has brought me to where I am and thanks be to God. How
1: difficult did you find it to start praying the rosary that excruciatingly, diligently...
2: excru- Excruciatingly difficult. But I noticed that if I asked Our Lady for the grace to pray the Holy Rosary, then I was able to do it. Because what does she want to give more than the ability to sing her praises and to meditate on the life of her son? What grace does she want to impart to a soul more than that?
1: And that's absolutely wonderful. We're about to go to break, so I want to remind everyone listening, we're going to be back on the other side talking to uh, Professor Michael Behe about intelligent design. So I hope that everyone listening will stay tuned throughout the commercials, and we will be right back after these messages. And we are back. And as promised, we're going to be speaking with Professor Michael Behe, a professor of biological sciences at Lehigh University in Pennsylvania and a senior fellow at Discovery Institute Center for Science and Culture. Uh, Again, you're listening to Red Sea Radio. Uh, You're listening to KEDC 88.5 FM. Her and Bryan College Station and KYAR 98.3 FM in Central Texas and KINF 107.9 FM in Palestine. Professor Behe, welcome on the radio show. How are you doing?
3: Hi, Deacon. Good. I'm anxious, to, or I'm, I'm looking forward to the conversation. It's nice to be with you.
1: It's a pleasure to have you because this is one of my favorite topics because I grew up in a science background, uh, worked for a diagnostic lab for 28 years, and uh, so I've never had an issue with science and religion being in the same topic, and nowadays that seems to be a bad thing. So um, one of the things I wanted to let you do is introduce yourself a little bit to our listeners. So what can you tell us about yourself? Professor Behe? I believe that we've lost him. Let us uh, try to get him back on the phone. I think the line Hello? went dead. Hello, are you still there?
3: Yeah, I'm still here. Uh, uh, I, okay. could, I could hear you, but you couldn't hear me.
1: Right. So, okay, we're back. So uh, would you go ahead and give us a little intro? Uh, oh, we're going to try to get him back on the phone with a new line. Uh, before while Thaddeus is doing that, uh, again a reminder that we still have tickets left for the um, Go Make Disciples Men's Conference. So if you would like one of these tickets, uh, feel free to give us a call. Again, that uh, phone number is eight Love Red C eight five five six eight three seven three three two. Again, six eight three seven three three two. Give us a call. All right, well, Professor Behe, we have you back on the line, and let's try this one more time.
3: <laughs>
1: Tell us a little bit about okay. yourself.
3: Okay, so I, uh, I'm here in Pennsylvania. I'm a professor of biochemistry at Lehigh University. I I actually grew up in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, which isn't too far from here. I'm from a large Catholic family. My there were 8 of us kids growing up and my wife and I have 9 kids, so we we did better on that. <laughs> <laughs> and I I uh I used to think Darwin's theory was true, uh, uh but then I read some books questioning it and I looked into it some more and and was surprised to think, or surprised to find that it didn't seem as well supported as, as it's made out to be. So I, I started writing about that, and that's gotten me into some hot water on occasion. But <laughs> otherwise, uh, I'm just your typical, you know, biochemistry professor with uh, with nine kids.
1: One question I have, and this has always struck me, is uh, when you look at science programs in high schools, Darwin's theory is presented almost as fact, very little emphasis placed on the fact that it is truly a theory.
3: Yes, that's that's exactly right. And uh, it's interesting that currently in, in biology, Darwin's theory is is questioned more widely than ever before. I, I would estimate, you know, upwards of half of biologists think that something in addition to Darwin's theory is needed to explain life. And these are not folks who agree with me about intelligent design, but they think that Darwin's theory is a uh, uh, doesn't really explain what modern science has discovered and and yet school kids are kind of uh indoctrinated into Darwin's theory. It's the textbooks seem uh, to act more like cheerleaders uh for his theory than uh as uh agents of developing minds, young minds to think and evaluate evidence as Uh, budding scientists and responsible citizens are are supposed to do. So, yeah, that's a problem.
1: Now, we've used the term intelligent design a couple of times now. Would you talk to us a little bit about what this is? And it doesn't necessarily mean God. It just means there's got to be something behind this, right?
3: Sure, yeah. You know, uh, some people... Uh, think that intelligent design is some necessarily a, a religious idea, but and that's not the case. You know, you go out, take a walk down the street, and you look to your left, and you see some dandelions scattered around somebody's yard, and you look to the right, and you see a, a nicely, uh, cultivated patch with roses and other flowers in it, you so know immediately that one was designed, the other one isn't. You take a look at a mountain range and you shrug your shoulders, uh, you know, that doesn't look particularly designed, but you look at Mount Rushmore, you immediately know that it is. And we recognize design when we see parts that are kind of placed in relationship to each other to fulfill some function, like portraying images of presidents of the United States and Mount Rushmore. Well, it turns out that, much to our surprise, science has discovered enormous uh, uh, purposeful arrangements of parts at the very foundation of life, the molecular foundation of life. It's literally... The cell is literally run by machines, machines made out of molecules, and some of them can be pretty stunning and and look. You know, some of them even have physical arrangements that we uh, humans will recognize as mechanical devices. My favorite is something called the bacterial flagellum, which is, is really an outboard motor, uh, and so when you when you look at an outboard motor in your everyday life, you know, you immediately know it's designed, and it's not a religious conclusion. You know it's designed because you see all the parts arranged, and by that arrangement they can fulfill a a, a purpose. And we see that all the time in life as well. So intelligent design is is a completely scientific theory in my view because it's based on empirical evidence, the the structures of these systems that science has discovered in life, plus ordinary logic about how we recognize design in the first place.
1: Were you ever surprised by the amount of pushback you get from the scientific community the minute you bring up intelligent design?
3: Uh, well, uh, yes. Uh, you know, none of these things is hard to see. Uh, and as a matter of fact, one of the points of Darwin's theory uh, that many subsequent scientists have also noted is that it's supposed to explain the appearance of design in life. Uh, Darwin himself was you know, impressed by uh, the argument of William Paley, who was older than Darwin and wrote a, wrote a book about design in nature and he he had this famous watchmaker argument that if you found a watch you'd immediately know it was designed because you saw how the parts were arranged for a purpose and uh but Darwin then thought that he had discovered a way to uh explain how things might be arranged in life but without uh a real purpose without a mind Uh, behind it. Uh, And uh, so, you know, it's it's not hard to see, and that was the very purpose, or at least one of them, of Darwin's theory. And yet, if you come up and say, well, I think Darwin was wrong, you know, now that we uh, have looked at the molecular level of life, now we have a better idea of what uh, random processes and and natural selection can do. Uh, I don't. I don't think Darwin was right. Yeah, I, I do think there was real intelligent design. Uh, if you're if you're in academia, you get jumped on with both feet. You know, that's uh, it's a taboo topic, and of course, it has philosophical ramifications and stuff. And and it turns out that those are really. Uh, uh, touchy uh, for a, a fair number of people in in academia and elsewhere too, I guess
1: to what do you contribute this reluctance to even entertain the notion of intelligent design?
3: Uh, well, there is a couple of things um, uh, Number one is that a fair number of scientists and especially ones in leadership positions and organizations uh don't like don't want there to be intelligent design. some folks are atheists, certainly not all and and uh there's a good chunk of religious uh scientists, but many in positions of influence are and they they don't like the idea of design because it points pretty strongly to God, although you know, there are certainly philosophical and theological steps in the argument that you have to take between simply seeing design in in life and then concluding that uh, the designer is God. Another um, point is a kind of professional pride. Uh, before Darwin's theory, both physics and chemistry had kind of and developed into mature sciences, and they didn't really invoke God or the need for design at least at the levels they were talking about uh in their scientific work but biology uh was you know staring in the face of you know all these wonderful. Uh, features of of life you know wings of bird birds eyeballs uh just everything and and really couldn't escape teleology or the strong appearance of design but but when uh Darwin came along, then uh many scientists thought that wow, now biology is a real science too. And we can just study what we study in our field without invoking something exotic like uh, God's, uh, God's will or, or some such thing. And so some people today, some scientists today, if you talk about intelligent design, they kind of take it as a personal insult. As if you know they can't explain you know they they don't want something else to be needed, they want to be able to explain everything themselves so uh so that and there are other factors too, but I think those are the the two big ones it, it's a complex thing, but uh, in, in my view, you know we all have our own preferences for the way that the world should work or should be, but it's up to a scientist to try to put aside his, his personal preferences and, and try to describe uh, what he finds, you know, uh, what, what he thinks the evidence shows.
1: Again, we're talking to Professor Michael Behe, Professor of Biological Sciences at Lehigh University. We're talking about intelligent design. And I want to remind everybody, uh, we still have the tickets left for the men's conference. Feel free to give us a call at 85-LOVE-RED-SEA, 855-683-7332. Now, one of the things that you have talked about um, in your books is something called irreducible complexities. How would you define those?
3: Well, yeah, irreducible complexity is kind of a fancy phrase, but it it just stands for uh, a simple idea. Uh, Many machines and other things, too, need a number of parts or components to work. And if they're missing one of the components uh, or one of the components is broken, then it just doesn't work. It's not that it works, you know, uh, less less efficiently it it doesn't work at all and uh in uh, my first book Darwin's black box where i discuss many of these issues i to get the idea across i pointed to an example of this from our everyday life and uh that was a a, a simple mechanical mouse trap that you'd buy in a grocery store or somewhere and uh A mousetrap has a number of different parts. It's got a a wooden platform to which most everything else is attached, and it's got this spring with ends sticking out to push against uh, something called a hammer, which squashes the mouse, and, and against the platform, too. And when the hammer is pushed over, you have to stabilize that in position until the mouse comes along. And there's something called the holding bar. Uh, so it's got a bunch of these different parts. And if you remove one, well, then the trap doesn't work. It's not like it works half as well as it used to. You know, it's it's simply broken. And it turns out that a lot of the machines that have been discovered in the cell at, you know, the very foundation of life are also irreducibly complex. Uh, this flagellum I talked about that's an outboard motor, if, if you take away its drive shaft or its propeller or its motor, then just like a mousetrap without one of its parts, it it doesn't work anymore. And the problem for Darwin's theory with this is that he always insisted that things had to be produced gradually by numerous steps over very long periods of time So that each step isn't all that improbable, uh, so that you could imagine that maybe chance could could build these things uh, in a stepwise manner. But but if you have an irreducibly complex machine, then you don't get anything any function until the all the parts are put together at at the end and if you've got it all together you know you don't need natural selection to to build it anyway so uh darwin acknowledged that if there were such things that you know couldn't be put together by what he said was were numerous successive slight modifications then, then his theory would be in a heap of trouble. And it turns out now that such things really fill the cell, and and no uh, nobody has any idea how his mechanism, Darwin's mechanism, could could build such things. What do
1: you see? One of the things that you mentioned uh, in your book is. Uh blood clotting as one of these irreducible complexities. And I was reading some of the arguments against that, and um, ultimately the argument is, well, there are instances where the blood clotting does not follow exactly the the same blood clotting that uh, we have in ours, and so it doesn't work. Although, ultimately, all they were pointing at is you can have blood clotting without two factors in the human blood clotting, And it still works. They did not account for the fact that if you remove anything else, the blood clotting doesn't work in that (laughs) model either. So ultimately, you have – how often do you run into this where someone challenges something that you've said with really an argument that doesn't hold water?
3: Oh the time. <laughs> I, I mean, uh, after, I, I first published Darwin's Black Box in 1996, so a, a while back. And a number of folks gave out such arguments within the first few years after it was published. And as you say, you know, none of them held water. And, and I've written replies to all of them. Uh, but it, it seems to have little effect because people point to the very same arguments you know decades later uh and it's as if they don't uh don't read the replies or they don't follow the argument because they feel so confident in their theory that they don't think they even have to but but uh i have a new book that came out just this uh a, one year ago last february uh, called Darwin devolves, and uh in the appendix, I have an appendix which looks back on those arguments about blood clotting and the bacterial flagellum and other things where people twenty years ago said, Aha, we can explain this and look at that and I show systematically that none of the rebuttals held up and that nobody has even tried to experimentally back up uh, their claims. Uh, So, you know, when you make an argument, people always say something if they they oppose it. Uh, But if you go back, uh, in my completely disinterested opinion, none none of the objections uh, has held up over time. In... uh your work,
1: when did you start looking at design in biological uh, processes, and when did it strike you that there had to be a design?
3: Well, uh, that's a great question. Uh, It turns out that I grew up thinking Darwin's theory was true, because that's what I was taught. All my instructors said that it was true and it could explain uh, life. And, you know, who am I uh, to say they were wrong? And in my biochemistry studies, I was not concerned with evolution. I was I was looking at other things in my research. Uh, but in the middle 1980s, a long time ago now, I read a book called Evolution, A Theory, and Crisis by an gen- Australian geneticist named Michael Denton. And he was an agnostic. Um, and He still is, as a matter of fact. Uh, nonetheless, he was sick and tired of, of Darwinians claiming that their theory could explain everything when he saw very many problems for it. And so I read that, and I was startled because he brought up things that I didn't have an answer for and that I had never heard about in my, you know, studies. And then nobody, in, no professor of mine ever brought up uh, problems for Darwin's theory, and I didn't think it had any. So in biochemistry, you study these phenomenally complex systems, really uh, amazingly complex And when I study them, sometimes I would kind of slow down and say to myself, gee whiz, wonder how that evolved. But then I'd say, well, yeah, I guess somebody knows. And I'd turn the page and go on to something else. So just the claim by people in authority that they had the answer is enough to, you know, torpedo the doubts of many people. But after I read this skeptical book... I asked myself that question again. Who has explained these things? And this time I went to the science library to look up any papers that might have uh, tried to explain the blood clotting system or the flagellum or intracellular transport or, or lots of other things. And I expected that, you know, people would have made a start, but might have gotten bogged down. But I was actually I was astounded to find that nobody had even tried, other than hand waving, you know, uh, uh genuflections to Darwin where that say, Isn't it wonderful how this amazing system evolved, but gave no argument for how it might have. There were no papers in the scientific literature which even tried to explain how Darwinian uh evolution might have produced these things. So I concluded it was pretty much a Potemkin village, you know, a facade that uh, people kind of nodded to each other and said, yes, yes, we know how this all comes together. But when you look for, you know, the nuts and bolts for the, the meat of it all, it simply wasn't there. And after that, when you start to doubt Darwin's theory, you know it's it's pretty easy then to see design because everybody saw design in life before Darwin and because of all these uh elegant arrangements these machines in the cell uh design you know suggests itself uh, pretty quickly after you come to doubt Darwin's theory and that's what happened to me and and I kind of started on my my trek at that point
1: we're speaking with Professor Michael Behe, Professor of Biological Sciences at Lehigh University. We're talking about intelligent design. And again, I want to remind our listeners, we still have tickets for the men's conference. Go make disciples. And please give us a call at 85 love sea 855 if you would like those tickets. Uh, one question I wanted to ask. Did you always think there was a connection between your faith and your work as a scientist, or did that come later in life?
3: Uh well, I, I thought there was a connection between my faith and pretty much everything, <laughs> including my work as a scientist. I, I didn't set out, you know, to become a scientist, um, uh, you know, for any particular Reason of faith I, I just wanted to know how the world worked, and so I thought science and particularly biochemistry, since it studies life would be would be a fine place to uh, study that. but I was doing my research on things very far removed from evolution, very far removed from you know basic questions and it wasn 't until I kind of uh, got sidetracked into this. Uh, question that I came across a theologically or philosophically charged uh, topic, but I have you know I went to Catholic schools, grade school, high school, and and um, I've always thought that you know everything is is uh, concern is a matter of concern for our faith, and uh, I didn't particularly think that science uh science uh was uh more of an issue than anything else i uh, on the contrary, I always thought you know questions of personal interactions would probably be uh more a matter of concern for for the faith uh so yeah i I didn't intentionally get into science because of I was interested in questions of science and the faith, but uh, it turns out that (laughs) I've ended up uh, uh, looking at things that that do kind of intersect there.
1: One thing that I noticed in the arguments of some of your opponents, that the language used is very much religious, Uh, the notion that if I don't have the answer, I have great faith that science will find this answer. And is this something that you've noticed also?
3: Oh, yes, yes, I have. And it's very striking if you think of uh, scientists as, you know, as Mr. Spock, uh, emotionless uh, uh, folks who just want to look into the facts. As a matter of fact, um, when my book Darwin's Black Box uh, came out, it was reviewed in the New York Times, and the reviewer said that that the idea I had proposed of intelligent design is is close to heresy, close to her- <laughs> heresy you know what the heck I, I was just you know looking at these physical systems and trying to explain where they came from, but uh, this was heretical, and other folks I, I remember reading a book by a a fellow named Robert Shapiro, who was a chemistry professor at New York University. And he wrote about the problems of uh, scientific explanations for the origin of life. And he says that pretty much everything that's been proposed so far simply doesn't work. We haven't a clue uh, how life originated. Nonetheless, at the end of his book, he says, you know, some people might, think that this implies something beyond nature, you know God, or something uh you know got life started or or uh was behind life, but he said not me, he says, you know if I can't find the answer with these theories, you know i you know I'll wait until we explore other planets and and see if life has has come about on those and and if not, I'll look for other other planets and And I thought to myself, well, you know, (laughs) what if it just didn't happen that way? You know, what if you're just barking up the wrong tree? But uh, as you say, you know, a lot of folks in the science community have very strong emotional uh, motives, it seems, to want to explain uh, these questions of life uh, by strictly material terms. And Um, So they oftentimes, you know, religious folks are kind of made fun of uh, for letting their beliefs interfere with their evaluation of scientific theories. But uh, it turns out it's very much the case also for uh, even for uh, these uh, smart scientists.
1: Our general manager, Dr. Thaddeus Romanski, has a question for you. Okay.
0: Yes, uh, Dr. Behe, I wanted to make sure we got a chance to have you talk a little bit about the event that you're coming to Texas A&M for that's on February 20th at 7 p.m. in Rudder Theater, and you're going to be here as part of the Veritas Forum. Talk to us a little bit about what the Veritas Forum is and who your interlocutor is going to be and what people can expect if they come.
3: Okay, yeah, sure. Yeah, it's going to be a great event, uh, as you say, February 20th, 7 p.m. And the Veritas Forum is uh, a Christian organization that sponsors talks and debates and uh, such uh, things on topics of interest to Christians uh, on university campuses. Uh, So um, they try to engage not only Christians, but the general academic community uh, on uh, topics of interest and approach them from an academically rigorous point of view. Um, And in this one, I'm going to be there, uh, so I'm a supporter of intelligent design that I think that uh, what we've discovered in life points to the very points very strongly to uh, the, um, the fact that life was designed. Uh, there's going to be another scientist there too. His name is Dr. Joshua Swamidoss, and he's uh, a professor at Washington University in St. Louis. He's an M.D. Ph.D., and he's also a Christian like myself. I'm. Catholic. He's a he's a uh, evangelical Christian, and he is going to defend evolution, kind of the unguided ish evolution, uh, as uh, the way that life originated. And he, like many uh, uh, a number of Christians, is what you might call a theistic evolutionist, where he thinks that evolution is God's way of producing life, but that we—but uh, d- d- that it is not opposed, uh, the science is not opposed to our religious conclusions. And as a matter of fact, many folks there think it's a better idea, a better religious idea than intelligent design.
0: And that's—oh, that's sorry,
3: sorry, sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. No, well, please go ahead.
0: I just wanted to say that's kind of a neat place to, for me to jump in with a follow-up, and that is, as Catholics— um, we're not wedded to. We don't have to be intelligent design proponents. We don't have to be theistic evolution proponents. Um, we can be creationists if we want to. Correct. I mean, kind of, kind of talk on on yeah. that a little bit.
3: That's right. If, if you if you look at church teachings, the church has never. Uh, made any definitive statements about how life got here, you know, the evolution versus creation um uh, evolution versus creation debate and so Catholics are indeed free to have pretty close to any position uh on this that they that they wish. And many of these things are are more much more uh questions of you know science and uh than they are of of faith and the science is you know <laughs> well uh, you know there's some evidence to support various positions the you know evidence is always uncertain, and there might be other evidence hiding out there that we don't know about, so uh you have to uh come to your own conclusions about how all this came together. Um so um it it'll be a fun uh discussion because we'll have two different positions by uh by two Christians uh who are going to argue from the science at least I am uh that uh, <laughs> uh that uh that uh, their positions are correct. So it'll be fascinating not only if you're cheering for one side or the other, but if you just want to see how people try to decide these issues, um, it, that w- it would be a, a good uh, a good opportunity to do that too.
1: One of the things that I have found is that inherent in anyone's defense of Unguided guided evolution, there seems to be an adherence to the concept that nature somehow magically understands what better is, that it's always moving towards something better. Uh-huh. Would you speak a little bit about how that doesn't really fit with random structures?
3: Sure. Uh, yeah, that historically that's that's been the, uh, one of the big drivers of darwin's theory uh and darwin of course w- lived in the 19th century when capitalism was you know uh, uh on the rise and where there was an optimistic feeling about uh society because only a couple centuries ago there you know people you know were poor and uh, living conditions were improving in the 19th century, so this, his theory seemed to fit with it that, you know, over uh, over time creatures get better and better and better and more and more adapted but it turns out that's that's not the case and society learned it to its regret in the big wars of the 20th century that, you know, society is not necessarily improving and we do bad things too and uh, additionally, science, the the more that we learn about evolution, we can see at the uh, tiniest levels, the molecular levels, that evolution does not improve things uh, if you take a sophisticated look at it. It turns out that evolution is changes in molecules, in DNA and the proteins that it it codes for. Darwin and his contemporaries didn't know anything about DNA. They barely knew about molecules. They didn't know. They thought the the cell was just a piece of jelly, protoplasm. They called it. But now uh, we have discovered the basis of life, and it turns out I I I discussed this at length in my new book Darwin Evolves uh, on sale on Amazon and a bookstore store near you makes a great gift for any occasion. (laughs) Uh, uh, But I explore there that we have now, science has developed the technology to track down mutations that help organisms, that help them evolve, that make them more fit for their environments. And the surprise is that the large majority of those are ones that break genes Break genes that were already there or degrade them, make them function less efficiently than they did. And uh, it was already known that the great majority of mutations that had an effect on an organism were detrimental. They damaged it, you know, birth defects or, or something. But the kicker is that now we know that even the large majority of mutations that help an organism do so by tossing stuff out not by making new things and you wonder how can that be and uh, an example i like to use is that well suppose uh suppose your life depended on your car getting you know a little bit better gas mileage uh how could you do that quickly uh how could you improve its gas mileage quickly well one thing you can do is Take out the seats and throw them away, and take the hood off the car and throw it away and and so on and and that would get make it the lighter car get better gas mileage. Of course, seats and hoods are useful on occasion, but if your life depended on your car getting better gas mileage, then that would be the way to go to toss things out and It turns out that uh, again many of the circumstances that improve organisms fit with their environment are ones that throw away things that were already there. And I I give many examples of this in in the book.
1: Now, we're nearing the end of our interview. We're down to about two minutes. So I wanted to end with uh, you coming down here for the Veritas debate and uh, the title of it's God and or Evolution. And My main question is, um, you come down here February 20th to do this. Why do you think it's important to do these sort of things?
3: Well, uh, because, of course, where we came from and how we got here is a is a fundamental question. It affects everybody's kind of vision of themselves and what they think the purpose of life is and and so on. So it's an extremely important question. And many discussions of this in in popular magazines and journals and uh, newspapers and so on uh, frequently talk about evolution and, and does this contradict things that we've been taught and exactly how does this fit in with our view of ourselves? And many people kind of have an inadequate understanding or a mistaken view of what's going on in evolution. And so uh, for anybody who's interested in the topic then, this important question and wants to Add a little bit of uh, knowledge to uh, to their um, to their um, background, and wants to hear several different views on the topic and uh, evaluate for themselves which they think is is a stronger, more likely view. Then, heck, you know, you can't do much better than come to this uh, event. <laughs>
1: Well, Professor, I I want to thank you very much for uh, coming to talk to us. I'll ask you to stay on the line a little bit after we go off the air. Uh, I want to remind our viewers the Veritas Forum, February 20th, 2020 at 7 p.m., and uh, if you have an opportunity to go see that, I think it's fascinating, especially for us as Christians. Uh, We need to know that our faith does not contradict science. Thank you for tuning in today. Next week, Gene Wilhelm will be your host on the Red Sea Roundup. Remember to tune in for that. Until then, when considering the many ways in which you might share your time, talents, and treasure with God, always round up.
0: Yeah.